So we finally reached the last week of Ecclesiastes. And when we started, I said there was one question that I wanted us to keep central. And that question was, does life yield less than projected? So when we started, the farmers hadn't started or hadn't began the harvest. But now we finish this series with most of the fields being harvested. Dean would maybe, or uh, not Dean, but Daryl maybe tell us otherwise. I know Dean told us uh, on Tuesday he still had, I think, 500 acres to farm. Hopefully he's gotten some of that done since then. But for the most part, the stuff is now off of the crops have been harvested. So I haven't heard much about this year's harvest, if it's been a good one or not. But I can remember a couple years back, we had a bad one. And now this was the year that uh, my grandpa, uh, Richard Hershey, decided to stop farming. It's when he decided to finally hang up, uh, I don't know, I guess you don't hang up the glove or the cleats in farming. Hang up the shovel. He doesn't use a shovel either. He decided to sell us stuff. How about that? Um, and I remember that year, he just, he wasn't a good year for him. But he also told me that he was lucky because he actually broke even. And he said there was a lot of guys that year who didn't break even. But he was able to sell, sell off things. I know that that year, there was, I think there was a lot of rain at the beginning of the year, in the spring. So some, some fields had been put out, and then there was spots that drowned, so they had to replant. And then some fields didn't even get out until really late. And then I think what ended up happening after the spring was in the summer, there wasn't a lot of rain at all. Um, but with him that year, his harvest did not, his harvest yielded less than he had projected. And because of that, that was finally enough for him. He's like, you know, I'd done this a long time. I'd had a lot of good years. But this year reminded me that I'm one year away from going bankrupt. So maybe I should just get out while I'm ahead. Now this is the thing. Life often feels that way for people, I think. We eventually get to the point where sometimes people just want out. So this might not be everyone's reality, but a lot of us have probably been through a season where this has felt more real for us. Maybe we haven't actually contemplated wanting out in a real way, but we see the appeal of not having to deal with the challenges every day and every year. So hopefully this series and this, hopefully going through Ecclesiastes has pushed you to think about these kinds of things. To consider how your faith addresses what so many people experience. And that's really what this comes down to for us. There are tons of people in this world, people in your lives, who feel the way that Ecclesiastes describes life. They feel that way. Maybe they're a Christian, maybe they're not. But what we all need to ask is, well, how does our faith and what we believe actually impact those feelings and what people experience. Because isn't Christianity supposed to be about hope? 
We talk about hope a lot, right? Well, we finally reached the end of Ecclesiastes, so the hope is that we actually will have some resolution. Since we've been going through and having a little bit of glimmers, but then on, there's always something to challenge those glimmers of hope. So if you want to open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, we will finish this book together. So Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 1 through 14. And if you want to follow along, I know Ben mentioned the um, uh, scripture passage uh, page, but I'll say it again, 580. If you want to follow along in your pew Bible or if you have a Bible, I encourage you to follow along. Excuse me. We're going to look at chapter 12, verses 1 through 14. Before we actually start reading, though, I want to remind us of what last week ended with. Because Coalette, the, the person we've been following throughout all of this, last week he moved from thought to thought before finally concluding that everything is meaningless. One last time. Excuse me. <coughs> Get a drink of what's left of this. There is a really old water bottle under here. I don't know whose it is. But I might, have to, I might have to use it. I've been saving it for a day like this. <laughs> so Colette finally says, you know what? I think everything is meaningless. And now we reach the final chapter. So verse 1, this is how he starts. He says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, <clears throat> I find no pleasure in them. So his final advice after everything is if life is meaningless, maybe what we do is remember our creator. Now we haven't heard him say it this way, but he has said things like this before. He's talked about understanding that things come from God, and he's talked about fearing God before. He says, remember your creator. But what does it actually mean to remember our creator? Well, this is something we're going to explore in more detail, but not until we get later in the passage. So keep in the back of your mind, what does it mean to remember my creator? He continues in verse 2. He says, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark, and the clouds return after the rain. <clears throat> so whenever Ben read this, I don't know how you felt about everything. But this is, it's hard for us to follow this section. Because Colette says, well, remember your creator. And then he says, in the days of your youth. But then he says, before the days of trouble come. And he says that, that you will find no pleasure in these days. So the question we need to ask ourselves is, well, what are these days of trouble? And then like I just read in verse 2, he talks about sun and light and the moon and the stars growing dark and the clouds returning after the rain. But what does that have to do with the days of trouble? 
Well, when we read passages like this, what often happens is we don't actually enter into the text in the way we should. What's going on is Colette is using metaphors to describe what he wants to communicate about the days of trouble. So what we need to do is look for common themes. So sun and light, moon and stars grow dark, and then the clouds return after the rain. So what is the concept he's communicating here? Well, so the sun and the light go dark, and the moon and the stars grow dark. So if the sun and the light go dark, that could be the end of a day. And then if you think about the moon going dark, well, maybe that is the end of the lunar cycle. And then he talks about clouds returning after the rain. So it's rain and the clouds go away, but then the clouds come back. So I think what he's talking about is the end of cycles. He's talking about darkness. So think about the ideas associated with darkness, the ideas associated with ends. And then he continues in verse 3. When the keepers of the house tremble, and the strong man stoops, when the grinders cease because they are few, and those looking through the windows grow dim. So now, what is the common theme with these, past, these verses? Well, we don't know what keepers are. That's not a word we think about. But keepers were probably male servants with the responsibility of overseeing the house. So they're like a, a modern-day manager of a restaurant or something. But with these really wealthy people in the ancient times, they had households with tons of servants. So they had a manager who would manage the daily work of the house. So the keeper isn't doing his job. And then the strong man is stooped. So he's no longer to act with strength as maybe a bodyguard or some sort of person connected to security. And then we have something about grinders. Now, we don't know what these grinders are, but grinders, when we read it, we don't know what grinders are. Grinders were female servants whose main responsibility was to grind the grain so that the household had flour. So the grinders go, grow, cease because there are few. They're no longer able to work the mills to produce food for the household. And then finally, the one looking out the window grows dim. Now this, it's a little different because the other roles were about people who work in the house. But now the one in the window, a couple of things that could be is a woman or a wife so a wife or a mother either looking for her husband or her son, waiting for them to return either from a journey or from war, but they haven't come. And maybe she just stops looking because it's been so long that her hope grows dim. So what are the concepts here? Darkness, jobs ceasing, people no longer doing their responsibilities. And now he continues in verse 4. He says, When the doors to the streets are closed... And the sounds of grinders fades, and the people rise up at the sound of birds, and all their songs grow faint. When people are afraid of heights and of dangers in the streets. So what are these ideas referring to? I think there's one of two concepts. Either the city is growing quiet at the end of a day, 
or the city is growing quiet because of an invasion of a hostile or a hostile government. People aren't safe. Now I think the second one makes more sense. Sokoa says, think about when the doors shut. And now these probably are describing actually the city gates. So the city gates would always close at night because you want to keep people out. But they would also be closed during an invasion. Now, another reference to grinders. So not only were, did households have grinders, but they were grinders who had more of a common role for people to buy things in the market. But there's no grain to grind, so they grow quiet and the f- sounds fade. Well, why are they growing quiet? I think because the city is being invaded, and for whatever reason, they're no longer able to have grain coming in. And now there's no one who are in the streets because they're afraid of the dangers. So what's the common denominator here? I think it's hopelessness. These people are living in the city and it's invaded or it's the end of the day, but I think the invasion idea connects a lot more. There's no hope left in the city. People are afraid. So we have these ideas of hopelessness, darkness, or the end of a cycle, jobs ceasing. Now he continues in verse 5 by saying, When the almond trees blossoms and the grasshoppers drags itself along and desires and no longer desires and desires no longer stirred, when people go to their eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. So now I think Colette's shifting to be more plain. And I think what he's talking about is age. He's talking about the aging process. So there's some evidence um, in other ancient manuscripts that suggest that the, the almond tree turning to blossom was an image for age. Because the almond tree blossoms were white, like the hair turning white at the end of age. So it was associated with people getting older. Now there's also an idea of a grasshopper who no longer wants to, to, to hop. And desire that's no longer stirred. And then there's this reference to death with mourners and people going to their eternal home. So I think what Colette's actually doing now is he's actually shifting to old age and to dying. And then he says this very plainly in verse 6 and 7. Remember him before the silver cord is severed and the golden bowl is broken. Before the pitcher is shattered at the spring and the wheel broken at the well. And the dust returns to the ground it came from, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. So I think here we have very plain metaphors of death. It talks about the silver cord being sh- severed, and now the bowl is broken. So this is a silver cord that holds a bowl together. So you think about a bowl that's maybe made of cloth. Megan has some of these that she's gotten from Africa. So there's a cord around the top that holds it together. If that cord's broken, the bowl just falls down. And there's these two ideas of water pitchers being, or of water sources no longer being able to be reached. A pitcher is shattered, so you can no longer get water from a spring. And then the wheel is broken on a well. You're no longer able to draw up the water. And then dust returns to the ground, and the spirit returns to God. These are images of death. So now we come back to death. 
So death has been a common concept throughout this book. And what, what Coelette tells us is he says, remember your creator before these final days come, the days of age when hopelessness leaves and then death comes. It's not a very good ending, is it? But why is it that he's telling people to fear God while they're still young? Why is the age part so important? Now, I don't actually think that what he's pointing to is age. I think he's actually pointing to time. And he's using all of this as a metaphor to say, look where your life is going. You don't have time to squander part of it away. It's important early in your life to realize what's really important before you've lost a lot of time. And he says, fear God. But he also has this little sense of hopelessness, I think. He says, you know what? In the end, everything's meaningless. So maybe what we need to do is realize early on what's really going on and then enjoy the small things while we can. Remember, this has been a theme. Enjoy the small things. And it's not plain in this passage, but I think what he's telling us to do is enjoy the small things while you can. Notice early on in life what's going on. And enjoy the small things. So this is actually Colette's final word to us. But I don't think it feels that great. I don't know how you feel. I don't think it feels that great. But if we go to verse 8, this is what it says. It says, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. So what this verse is doing is actually marking for us the end of Colette's speech. Verse, chapter 1, verse 2 is almost identical to this. And what's going on is the person who compiled the book, the frame editor, is telling us that we've reached the end. He's saying, you've reached the end of Colette's words. And what I think he's saying is, you know what? I know this is not comfortable, but this was an Israelite living at a certain time where he didn't feel like there was any hope. And all he could muster up was to tell us to remember our creator. But Colette does, or the frame editor doesn't end with Colette's speech. He says in verse 9, he continues, he says, Not only was the teacher wise, but he was also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. They're collecting sayings like firmly in embedded nails, giving up one shepherd, given by one sh shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study wearies the body. And then he says this. Now all have been heard. You've heard what Colette said. And here is the conclusion of the matter. So this is how the frame editor says, well, this is 
how I interpret and tell you to take Colette's words. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. So the, co- so the frame editor's final assessment is fear God and keep his commandments. So now we get back to fearing God. How do we fear God? I think fearing God is as simple as recognizing our position in relation to him. So just like a child or a student or an athlete needs to recognize their position in relation to a parent, a teacher, or a coach, we as creatures of God need to recognize our position in relation to him. So fearing God is something that we do by recognizing this position. Because God created us, we can't expect to understand everything about how we work as well as him. Now this is where obedience comes in. Because we don't just obey God's commandments because he made arbitrary rules. Now a lot of the world would want to tell you that. They want to say, you know what the Bible is? is a bunch of stuff that people wrote to control other people. But we believe it's the word of God. And, I, and the reason we believe that is because it has the power to transform. When we're obedient to God, we're not just obeying some rule. It's actually the very opposite. Because God didn't make rules arbitrary. He made rules or he gave us the way to live so that we could flourish. So that we can enjoy the fullness of life. Because we can't enjoy life when we live the way we think we're supposed to live. Because remember, we don't know everything about who we are. We're only creatures. Yes, we've discovered a lot about how people work. But even once we discover, we don't always know what to do with that information. That's why doctors are always working to discover how to make things better. And social sciences are working on how to relate better as humans and understand how we work better psychologically. Even when we know, we can't always name how to make and fix the problems. But God knows how we're supposed to live. Just like gasoline won't run a diesel engine, certain things don't run well in our bodies, but we don't always know it. We can't always know these things, so we look to God for guidance. And that's what his commandments are. They're explanations of how we live the way he has made us to live. Now this points us towards the most important thing about this entire book that I hope that we cannot miss. God's commandments aren't just for individuals. And actually they were really given not to individuals but to communities. They are for his kingdom, for his people who make up his holy nation, the saints. If you think back to All Saints Day, we're all saints. 
God's commandment isn't just for us as individuals. They're for us as a people, as a nation, under an alternative king, Jesus. Now, this nation was established when Jesus became king. And we'll talk about that next week. And obedience to God is also obedience to our king, Jesus. So now this brings us back to the small things. We've been talking about small things throughout. The small things come about when we're able to see and live as God has made us to live. Because we learn to see things through God's eyes. We learn to see people through God's eyes. We learn to see the blessings that God has given us in everyday life. And when we see these small things, what we're actually seeing, now this is the most important part, what we're actually seeing in those little blessings is the hope to come. We're glimpsing the kingdom we're waiting for. The one that we call heaven. We're waiting for heaven to be here. And we get to see heaven here in those small little blessings. So those aren't insignificant. Those are God's way of showing us, this is the way I want you to live. This is what I made you for. This is how you flourish. And guess what? You get to do some of it now. But yeah, life is hard. Life isn't fair. Sometimes some people's lives are way easier than yours, even though it doesn't make any sense. But he says, you know what? You get to look at these small things and know that a better life is coming. It's kind of like when you make cookies and you get to lick the batter off the beaters. Right? That's so good and maybe some people like the cookie dough better. But it still makes you want to have one of those hot, gooey cookies right out of the oven. I, can, I still remember when my grandma used to make cookies when we'd be at her house. And we just couldn't wait to have them. She also wouldn't let us lick the batter, so we didn't get the glimpses. But the batter... Off those beaters is the small things in life. But we're waiting for the cookie. But we get glimpses of the cookie while we wait. And now this is how we change the world. Through these small acts of kindness, through these small acts of joy. So through seeing the small goodness in all people and trying to bring that out of them. This is how we change the world. We learn to enjoy these small things while we wait for Jesus to return. And then we start to share those blessings with the world. That's why our churches should be different. We're under a different king and he offers us the hope the world can't offer. So how is it that we change the world? We change the world day by day, God's way. While Coalette was writing in a time before Jesus, we live on the other side. We have the real hope that he was waiting for. We change the world day by day God's way. So what's God's way? Well, it's following his commandments. It's being, being obedient to him. It's living the way he made us to live. It's worshiping him and loving others. Because in the end, the commandments come down to one of those two things. How do we worship God well? How do we love other people well? Well, look right here. How do you be a better person so you can love people better? And how do you be a better person so you can worship God better? 
So we're supposed to do it God's way, and we're supposed to do it every day through enjoying the blessings that people give us and enjoying the small blessings from God. So we change the world day by day God's way. So even though Ecclesiastes is, sometimes can feel incomplete, when we look at Ecclesiastes against the good news of the gospel, we see that Colette is saying, you know what, well, I see these commandments from God, and there's something about that that makes sense. And I see that enjoying these small blessings and the fruits of our labor, there's something good and holy about that. And then we look at Jesus and we see how that's the case. We change the world day by day, God's way. So when we go back out into life, I encourage you to look for those small things. Because they're not just small things. They're actually God's glory. In the, and they are the batter as we wait for the cookie, which is Jesus' return. Living in the new heavens and new earth. Resurrected bodies. No evil. No death. And forever dwelling with our creator in the paradise that he's made for us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you. And we ask that you would help us to see the blessings in the small things. May we see that it's not just a small act of kindness, but it's actually an encounter with your love. May we see those glimmers of people that are good even in their brokenness, not as little glimmers of goodness, but of reflection of what you have put in all of us as your image. May we see it as reflections of you. And may we better be able to reflect you to the world. May we be able to take this message to a world that has no hope. A world that sees life as meaningless. May we proclaim the good news of the gospel and offer hope to those who need it. We ask this all in your son's name. Who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit. One God, now and forever. Amen.